The Bob Murphy Show, episode 173. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be talking with Alistair Roberts, who was suggested to me by one of of the uh, supporters of the show that he had heard an earlier guest talk about the work of Rene Girard and said, hey, get this guy Alistair on. He's great. And he was. So that's mostly what we talk about. Girard is being talked about in libertarian circles. David Gornowski talks about him a lot. And having to do specifically with the nature of sacrifice and what role does that play in our culture and how did Christianity sort of turn that on its head and, and so forth. So Alistair and I have a great conversation on all that stuff. Let me read you his official bio. Alistair Roberts, PhD, Durham University, works for the Theopolis and Devanon Institutes. He is an author of Echoes of Exodus, Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. He participates in the Mere Fidelity and Theopolis podcast and produces his own podcast on YouTube and SoundCloud accounts. And I'll give the links to those folks uh, at the sermon notes page. So again, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 173. And now we proceed to my discussion with Alistair Roberts. Well, Alistair, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for having me on. So I will have already, of course, given a little bit of an intro that I'm going to record separately from our conversation here for the audience. But but just so they have an idea of where you're coming from and you know your, your theological worldview, do you want to just give a little bit of a quick background on who you are? Certainly. I'm a theologian living in the Midlands of the UK. I studied at St. Andrews and um, the University of Durham, where I did my PhD. My interest is primarily in biblical theology, and I've done work in liturgical theology as well. My interests are quite extensive. At the moment, I'm doing a lengthy series of commentaries, audio commentaries on the whole Bible. So that's a two and a half year project, and I'm about a year into it. Um, I work with the Theopolis Institute, which is committed to engaging theology, the Bible and culture, and speaks to a whole lot of different issues. The Davenant Institute as well, which has various classes available online and connects scholars and retrieves theological works from past generations and makes them relevant to a new um, generation of theologians and thinkers. Okay, so just so I understand, are you attached to a particular church or these institutes are where your like headquarters are, if you get what I'm asking? I do my work with these scholarly organizations. Mm -hmm. The church I attend, I do lay preaching, Mm -hmm. but I'm not a pastor. Right, okay, okay, great. So as we mentioned before we started this, I know what we're going to end up talking a lot about is is sacrifice. And you also are very familiar with the work of Rene Girard. Folks for the Bob Murphy Show listeners, remember we had David Gornowski on, and I'll link to that episode too. And and David really likes to draw on, you know, the scapegoating issues and stuff from Girard, his analysis. So Alistair, can you 
for the benefit of the listener who the, a lot of them, I think this name keeps getting mentioned, but they haven't gone and read it. Can you just give the, uh, you know, the layman's summary of who was this Rene Girard and why do so many theologians seem to be talking about him lately? Yes, Rene Girard is a French thinker, died quite recent, recently. He's someone who did a lot of work in discussing literary works, things like Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, other things like that, but then veered into the area of sociology, theology, and came to the Christian faith later on. And his particular idea is called the scapegoat mechanism. So one of the things that he argues is that human beings have mimetic desire. And what he means by that is that when I want something, it is something that other people imitate my desire, and I imitate other people's desires. So this can be seen in all sorts of areas of life. It can be seen in the way that we value things according to the price tags that are on them, because that's the hey, indicator Elster, of other I, people's... Can I say one second? So mimetic, is that like mimicry? Is that is that where that's coming from or not? Yes, um, okay. imitation, mm -hmm. um, mimicry. Okay. Um, it's the fact that if you put two kids in a room with a hundred toys, they'll end up fighting over the same one. Right, right, right. Um, it's something that's deep in human nature. We desire things because other people desire them. Mm -hmm. And so he explores this in a great many different contexts. For instance, the classic context would be the love triangle, where you have two people fighting over the same woman, mm -hmm. and they become mirror images of each other. You see this also in a context where people get into conflict. You have two people face-to-face, -face, one's getting heated, and then the other gets heated in response. And it's very hard to break that without being a third person that steps in, grabs your friend, let's say, by the shoulders, and just looks in his eyes and calms him down. Mm. <laughs> because we imitate people's emotions, their desires, things like that. Now, within a society, you have all these cycles of imitation taking place. We're all imitating other people's desires. We're all ending up competing and fighting over the same things. We want the same things, and we find that other people become rivals for those as they want them too. Now, how do you create unity in a society like that, where everyone ends up imitating each other and at each other's throats? And Girard's It sounds insult, like Twitter. <laughs> it does, You, know, you yes. log in and say, what are we fighting about today? Like, so what's the agenda? <laughs> oh, that's what it is. I can fight about that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and what you find is the the different sides in such mm. fights increasingly become like each other. Right, right. Um, mm. it, it is something where the anger of one side is mirrored by the anger of the other. And so what he observed is that there is a mechanism that can deal with this, but in a perverse way. And so he talks about the scapegoat, which is a way in which all these different people who are formerly at odds can join together in expelling this one particular person that represents all the tensions, all the wrongs, all the different things that lie between them. So the scapegoat is a sort of lightning rod for all the violence and antagonisms within a society. And as you expel the scapegoat, suddenly you find the society is enjoying peace and everyone's no longer at odds with each other. They've come to terms with each other and they're friendly and there's a great celebration. And the scapegoat and the death of the scapegoat or the expulsion of the scapegoat has brought peace. And this is often provoked by a particular degree of crisis. So if something serious happens, you'll have these emotions and tensions going to a boiling point. And that time is when you'll often find a scapegoat. So maybe it's the Jews poisoning the well, or maybe it's the immigrants, or maybe it's the disabled people, what, whatever it is. It's usually mm. someone who's marked out as different from the group in some way or other. And they are, as a result of that, a fitting mm. scapegoat 
candidate for the wider body or the, of the society. The example that popped into my mind was the, the biblical story of Jonah when they're on the ship and it's just crazy and they decide we got to draw yeah. lots and throw somebody overboard, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's, it's that sort of person who brings peace. Mm-hmm. Now, what he observes is that as you go through all these myths and legends of the ancient world, particularly the Greek myths that he would be focusing upon, you see this scapegoat mechanism occur many different times. And it occurs in a way that masks itself after it has performed its purpose. So you have the scapegoat cast out, and then you have peace created. And often you'll find retrospectively, the scapegoat becomes deified in some way. But he observes within the Christian literature, this does not happen. Rather, the Christian literature exposes the scapegoat motif um, mechanism and shows that Christ being the great example, the person who is expelled is the innocent victim. And as a result of exposing the innocence of Christ, it disables that scapegoat mechanism. It can no longer perform its effect. When you realize that you've expelled someone who is innocent, it no longer actually provides a cause of unity. And so when the early church sends missionaries all over the place, they end up upsetting the social order because wherever they go, they're exposing that the one that was expelled, was innocent. And so there's riots wherever they go. You find the same thing in Jesus' ministry in different occasions. I think the great example of this that Girard focuses upon is the story of the Gerasene demoniac. So there's a town by the sea, and there's this one guy who's possessed by many demons, Legion. And Christ comes and casts out the demons into a herd of pigs that run down the hill into the sea. And then he's in his right mind. And the people of the city come out and they see this guy who's been living in the tombs of their city for a long period of time, violent, cutting himself They even had to like chain him up, right, in some versions? Indeed, yeah. yeah. Mm. And he's in his right mind. And they're really scared. This powerful healer, an exorcist, has come to their territory. And now also something has unsettled the order of their town. Because before that, all their demons could be, as it were, channeled into this man. But as soon as that man is removed, they have to deal with their demons themselves. And you see this in a family situation on occasions. So, for instance, if there's a dysfunctional family, often there will be one particular member who, whose particular dysfunction can provide a scapegoat for everyone else. Their substance abuse or whatever it is can provide the excuse for everyone else. And so they're the scapegoat. And then if they were to be healed, if they were to get their life back on course, the family would fall apart because the family's held together mm-hmm. by this cycle of accusation and putting off the blame onto this other, this one particular member. And so this is something that's seen absolutely everywhere in human relationships, in social dynamics. It's one of the reasons why we go to war in certain situations. And so people seeing an idea as generative and powerful as this have used it to explain a number of different aspects of human psychology, sociology, and various aspects of literature and theology. One of the particular areas where this has been used is to explain sacrifice. So sacrifice is a sort of what some might call a sublimation of the um, scapegoat mechanism. So you're no longer casting out a human being, you're casting out an animal or killing an animal. And that performs the sort of scapegoat mechanism in the same way as we might have 
a sublimation of warfare between two towns in a football match. Mm-hmm. So you're having conflict, but it's bounded and it's a ritualized thing. It's no longer the violence that you would have mm-hmm. within a traditional war. So, so Elster, can I can I just stop you? Can I just circle back a little bit just to make sure I understand exactly what Gerard was saying? So normally when the, the common person hears about a scapegoat, automatically one would think, oh, the the whole analysis is going to be about how this person was innocent and what bad people there. But what is interesting is you're saying it, there is a sense in which you're saying, no, this actually historically did, it did serve a social role and like we can understand why this would have persisted. Yes. And, like not judging whether it's, you know, good or bad, but just like, like talking, you know, as if we're anthropologists just looking at this tribe and wondering why do they do X, Y, and Z and say, oh, well, this is why they're doing it. So there, there's that element. And what was interesting is you were saying, oh, okay, so there's a victim that like takes upon all the, let's call them sins of the community and then is killed and then later in retrospect is deified. And so I thought you were going to say, and so the epitome of that, of course, is the gospel account because that checks all those boxes. And yet you were saying, but that blew that up. And, and so the issue is because the only way for the town to feel like they got healed or whatever and for that to perform the cathartic function is if they believe, no, that thing really was the embodiment of all that was wrong with us. And so if it turns out that, no, that was the son of God who was completely innocent, then you feel guilty. It's like, that didn't. So can you just talk a little bit, you see what I'm saying? How at first I thought you were going to go one way with it and then it was the opposite. So first of all, the scapegoat is not cast out because of their own sin primarily. Mm -hmm. Now, there can be situations where it's someone who has done something wrong and they're performing or they're placed within the scapegoat mechanism. And so that that's how it plays out. But the mechanism isn't working on account of their guilt. It's working irrespective of whether they are guilty or not. The problem is, if they are innocent, as in the case of Christ, that prevents the catharsis from occurring. It presents that person as a wrongful victim, actually a true victim in the sense that they have suffered some violence. So, Elser, can I ask you, is the, is the crucial thing that the community thinks the, the scapegoat is guilty? Yeah, Like the Salem witch trials, like as long as they really believe they were witches, then that might have performed some function yes. of bringing the community. Yes, it some catharsis. Okay. I think another great story that illustrates this in scripture, which Gerard focuses upon, is the story of Job. Mm-hmm. So Job is, as he argues, and I think with a good case within the text, he's a leader of his people. He's a king among his particular tribe or whatever group he's part of. And when he's struck by the Lord, when his family is, members of his family die, when the flocks and the herds and other things are wiped out by raiding parties, all the fingers seem to be pointing to him. He's the one that must be to blame. And then even more so when he's struck in his own body with um, these sores. And so you have all these people gathering around him as his friends, these three friends who accuse him and want him to confess he has to acknowledge that all these things have come upon the people as a, on account of him. And it's not just about his personal crisis. This is a crisis for the whole nation. I mean, if you're the king and leader of the people and you're struck in the way that Job is, it's a crisis for everyone mm-hmm. around you, the whole sheepdom or whatever it is. And so they accuse him and they want him to accept the accusation, as it were, to willingly cast himself in the role of the scapegoat to be the lightning rod for all that and then to bring peace to the group 
as catharsis as that is accepted. But the Lord vindicates him at the end, and he refuses to accept the accusations that are made against him. So that's an example of how the mechanism can be foiled or Mm. frustrated in different ways. Another example would be the story of the prophets. Jesus talks to the people of his day and says that they're decorating the tombs of the prophets, but yet their fathers were the ones who killed the prophets. Mm -hmm. And so there's this cycle of you kill the prophets, you get peace, and you're no longer troubled by these figures, and you have a sense of rest. And then you start retrospectively elevating the prophet to a high level. The prophet is seen as this great saint, but your own fathers were the ones that killed the prophet, and you're going to kill the prophet of your own day. But, I mean, we do the same thing to great people who challenge us in our society. Often we can, while they're alive, we can do all these sorts of attacks upon them. And then when they're dead, in retrospect, we can elevate them to a great height when they're no longer there to speak back. And so we end up just putting them in a position where we've, we've muted them. But Christ, as he's, he rises from the dead, cannot be silenced in that way. Mm-hmm. And so the scapegoat mechanism is broken down and it's demystified as well. So once you've read the story of Christ, you're a lot more alert to the way that victims can be innocent. And so he argues that Western society, following the influence of the Christian faith, has been a lot more aware of the category of the victim in ways that other cultures simply aren't without that influence. Now, that's in more recent years, he argues, curdled into something called victimology, where people, it ends up being twisted in various ways. But at the very heart of it, that concern for victims is a very positive thing. It's a sign of a society that is alert to injustice at this fundamental level and the way that a society will channel its violence into innocent onto innocent characters in order to establish catharsis. So can I ask you then, So, do, is Gerard arguing, for example, there's lots of stories in like Greek mythology and from our modern pers- Christian perspective. And, and folks, you know, I don't just mean whether someone is actually personally a Christian, but Western society that, you know, has come through Christendom. And so that's like the lens that we're seeing this stuff through. We can look at that and say, oh, wow, that's a com- horribly unjust that, you know, in order to get the good winds to bring the ships over for the war, the king kills his daughter and so-and-so, you know, that kind of thing is a sacrifice. Are you saying that, like, the Greeks, when they would tell that story, they wouldn't bat an eye about, like, that wasn't the point? Like, it wasn't like, oh, wow, this poor girl has to get set, like, that wasn't the way they would look at it? Yes. And the other thing that you'll you'll see is that he argues that there's a sort of film of mystification that's placed over the actual events. So the myths are there to cover over historical events Mm -hmm. where there was great injustice. And so the person is retroactively um, deified or exalted in some way to some great hero. But at the basis of that story is this act of unjust expulsion or killing of someone on account by the community. Now, in the story of Christ, it's the demystification that is at the heart of the Gospels that really stands out to him. So he's reading these myths from ancient Near Eastern societies and Greek societies, uh, Greek society and elsewhere. And he's seeing again and again this pattern playing out, but in a way that is covering over the what has taken place. Whereas in the story of Christ's crucifixion, it's the exact opposite. You see the whole process in effect, the whole mob congealing around the act of crucifying Christ, 
all shouting out, crucify him. The way that Herod and Pontius Pilate, who were formerly at war and or at odds with each other, you know, become friends mm-hmm. because they agree in the crucifixion of Christ. And the way in which Elster, there's... Can, sorry, can you, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Because I only recently learned that. Can you just speak to... Because that's not the yes. normal film treatments that it was after this little deal or whatever you want to call it, that those two were now closer, those political leaders? Yes, yeah, so, and you'll find that people are drawn together by a common enemy onto which they can project the violence and antagonisms that they have. And so these two people who are formerly at odds, whose desires were at odds with each other, they want the same things in certain respects, and so they end up bumping into each other, they suddenly have a desire that they can share a desire to get rid of this particular person. The two people being Herod, who was like the local king, and then Pontius Pilate, who was appointed by Rome? Yes. Okay. And so as they join together in that strong desire, it works out that way. The other thing is that the mimetic character of desire means that desire has a cumulative effect. So Jesus points out this in John chapter 8. It's a disputed passage, but it's an important one for showing the dynamics of mimetic desire. He points to the importance of the first stone. Because once you've cast the first stone, the second stone is very easy to cast. Mm -hmm. And the third stone, even easier and progressively easier from then on. And what you'll often find is people won't even be casting stones. They'll be casting a sort of pebble just to be part of the stoning group. They don't, their heart may not be completely in it, but you see this all the time on social media. There will be a blow up, there will be some person that's singled out as the object of all the wrath of people on Twitter or Facebook. Mm -hmm. And people will join together in castigating and shunning, expelling this person, canceling them, whatever you want to call it. And as a result of that, you'll find people who are formerly at odds with each other finding a sense of unity in this common act of cancellation of some disliked figure. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what is revealed in the story of Herod and Pontius Pilate, and more broadly in the story of Christ's crucifixion. And the apostles proclaiming this can't be shut up. There's a stubborn witness to the fact of this injustice. And so whereas retroactively, if Jesus were just a prophet who did not rise from the dead, they would be able to cover up his tomb, um, end up in a few years' time starting to visit and celebrate his tomb as this tomb of a prophet and silencing him and changing his message in its uncomfortable respects, they can't do that with one that has raised from the dead and that has witnesses in the way that the apostles are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I interrupted you earlier. You then wanted to flow into just a discussion of sacrifice more generally. So here's one question just to to maybe start it off. So if the scapegoating mechanism with respect to to people only really works if the community at least can fool itself into believing this person really is guilty and all these things troubling us, vexing our town are because of this malefactor. So let's either cast them out or kill them. And that that will cleanse us, you know, and, and, and help things go back to normal or heal the community. How then, if if what we're doing, if instead of that sort of barbaric practice, now we're doing something that seems more civilized and let's take an, an animal and, you know, slit its throat and so forth. I mean, there, they they can't think that, oh yeah, the reason I lost my job is because of this this lamb, right? Yep. So so how does that how does that work? Is that Gerard would argue it's a common ritual practice mm-hmm. that 
um, in the ritual practice, all these people are being joined together in the sacrifice of the animal. And as a result of that, they can project their tensions and other things onto that, the whole ritual process. And there is a sort of catharsis that is achieved through the, I mean, in some ways, on occasions, it can be a ritual um, reenactment of a specific historical event of cleansing with an actual scapegoat. On other occasions, it's just the ritual itself. Now, the thing with Girard's idea is it's such a big and powerful idea. I mean, when you start to think about the mimetic character of desire, the imitative character of the way that we want things, you begin to see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. It makes sense of a lot of different things. And so an idea like that is always threatening to become bigger than it ought to be. Right. Because it explains so much, people will take it to explain things that maybe it does not explain so well. And there, I think, the attempt to explain sacrifice reaches too far. I think it explains certain aspects of the death of Christ. But when you look at the sacrifices of the Old Testament, for instance, there's a lot more going on there. Mm -hmm. So various theories have been advanced to explain sacrifice. Some have, Marshall Halbertal has a very good book on sacrifice, where he talks about the way that sacrifice is a sort of cycle of gift. And so one of the great stories that Girard focuses upon is the story of Cain and Abel in chapter four of Genesis. And Cain's violence arises in part from his exclusion from the cycle of sacrifice, according to Halbertal. It's a sort of nullification of his existence. If you give a gift to someone and you want that gift to be accepted because that gift is a representation of yourself, if your gift is denied, you've been denied. You've been removed from the cycle of gift. And so he argues that um, Halbertal argues against Girard that the importance of sacrifice is this gift cycle. The other thing that's worth noticing is that within the Old Testament, gift is or sacrifice isn't focused upon the death of a creature. The death actually tends to happen before the actual sacrificial elements. And so the sacrificial dimensions tend to involve a few different things. So first of all, there's the burning up of the sacrifice on the altar, or there can be the presentation of the blood on the altar or in some part of the tabernacle. And then there can be a communal meal. The meal is a very important part of the sacrifice. And then with the sacrifice, there can be offerings, grain offering, drink offering, things like that. And so those different elements are the things that actually are in the foreground in the book of Leviticus, not the actual death or expulsion of the animal. The expulsion of the animal is more prominent in the story of the scapegoat in chapter 16 of Leviticus, which is a very specific ritual performed one day every year as a sort of annual. Um, I mean, I think of it as the have you tried switching it off and on again day for the whole sacrificial system. It mm -hmm. reboots the whole thing, as it were. So you have all these sins and transgressions and all this impurity that, as it were, is building up within the system and the scapegoat ritual is designed to flush it out. Now, that is not functioning in the way that Girard is thinking, I don't think. The, one of the things you'll notice also is the importance of, for Girard's approach, one would think that sacrifice as such would be enough. But within the sacrificial system, there's a close attention given to specific times in which the sacrifice is made to a specific type of sacrifice over another. So you have the whole burnt offering, or it could be the sin offering, or it could be the trespass offering. 
or it could be the tribute offering or the communion or peace offering. And so there are all these different offerings for different occasions. It's not sacrifice as such. The other thing you notice is that there's an emphasis upon the specific features of the animal. So if if you're offering something for the high priest as a sin offering, it has to be a bull. If you're offering for the leader of the people, the king, let's say, it has to be a male goat. If you're offering for a regular member of the people, it could be a lamb. And then in other cases, it could be a turtle dove or a pigeon if it's a poorer person. And then sometimes that's stipulated. So in the case of the offering after childbirth, one of the offerings has to be a turtle dove or pigeon. And then if you have more money, a ram. And then if you don't have so much money, as we see in the story of Mary and Joseph, when they visit the temple in the presentation of Christ, they offer two turtle doves. And so you have a lot of attention given to the features of the animal that seem strange if the point is just sacrifice as such. There seems to be something more symbolic going on. And I think that's the clue that within the life of Israel, its life is projected onto animals. We don't tend to think in these terms. We tend to think in more abstract categories. But within their life, it's a more poetic system where my identity is projected onto animals and there is this analogy between different levels of society and different levels of animals. The animals are all domestic animals. There are five animals in the sacrificial system. So there's the turtle dove, the pigeon, the sheep, the goat, and the bull, or the various forms of cattle. And sometimes the age will be stipulated. So it must be a a ram of the first year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And those details help us to see that there's a bit more of a symbolic process taking place here where what you could maybe think of it as is a sort of enacted prayer. It's a symbolic process of moving near to God. And God always talks about this as something that it needs to be confirmed and validated in the actual movement of the heart and in the actual practice. So mercy is greater than sacrifice, or does God desire sacrifices more than actual obedience? What he really cares about is obedience. You have Samuel challenging King Saul on that front in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 is another passage. Mercy is greater than Mm -hmm. sacrifice. And Christ talks about these on various occasions. Now, the point of that is not that sacrifice is unimportant, but that the point of sacrifice is performing the approach of the heart towards God. And you might think about this as like, it's like a wedding ceremony. There are things that people do in a wedding ceremony that are symbolic. I mean, why do you exchange rings? The ring represents something about the union, the how precious that person is. Mm-hmm. It represents a very physical connection with their their body, that there's something that you have given to them that is a mark of your care and your love upon their body. And it's going to stay there. It's also something that has, I mean, it can be a representation of the uniqueness of the person, the particular stone that's used, or the the way that it's an unending loop. That's another way to represent the love. It's the brilliance of the love with the um, gold, whatever it is. All of these things are as it were, mapping the reality of the love onto something that's just a stone and a piece of metal. Now, if we thought about it that way, it would seem very strange. In the same way as you go through, if you went through a coronation ceremony and you thought about all the things that are taking place. I mean, why do you wear a 
piece of metal around your head. How does that represent the rule of a nation? Mm -hmm. But yes, it's, it's a symbolic ritual through which the person performs a deeper symbolic reality. A far greater reality is condensed into a very focused ritual ceremony. And in the same way with the sacrificial system, the whole point mm. is to learn how to approach God in a particular way. Now in the new covenant, as Christ comes, there is a fulfillment of the animal sacrifice with the actual presentation of Christ to God. And so he deals with sins as the sin offering was supposed to do. He deals with our trespasses in the same way as the trespass offering. He is the one who presents himself as a whole person to God as the whole burnt offering was supposed to do. He's the one who provides for communion with God as the peace offering was supposed to do. He's the one on the basis of whose gift we can present all of our um, gifts and offerings to God, our tithes, our labors, whatever it is, in the same way as the tribute offering. And so it's a symbolic performance of something that is fulfilled in an actual human presentation of the self to God. So sacrifice continues mm -hmm. in the New Testament, according to Paul. Okay, great. So I, I definitely want to come back to and have you just elaborate on Jesus as the, the ultimate sacrifice or the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Maybe that'd be a way to, a pithy way of saying it in that. But just very pedestrian terminology here, at least in the United States, when we use the word sacrifice, there's two different senses of it, even as a noun. And so, like if say, oh, gee, um, you know, those parents, they had a newborn and they really wanted him to go to college and they, they didn't have very high paying jobs. So they, they had to sacrifice over 15 years, but they really wanted to make sure that kid had a better life and went to college. So there clearly what sacrifice, well, I guess that would be a verb in that way, obviously means like they're cutting down their own lifestyle. They're, they're giving up things that they could have otherwise enjoyed in the pursuit of some other goal. Whereas if you say, oh, this ancient, you know, this culture over here, archaeologists or, or anthropologists went and discovered they perform human sacrifice. You know, they mean that means they're killing people. They don't mean we looked over there and yep. they're all saving for their kids' college. That's human sacrifice, <laughs> right? And so, with respect to then, like you know, Old Testament things, how much of it, or is it is it kind of both at the same time? Is it that it's the fact that the animals are being killed, and, and that's why I'm asking because you you sort of hinted that you're saying it. We might think that we hear about sacrifice and we're thinking of animal, you know, goats having their throats slit. When is it more that no, it's it's the the giving up of your first fruits or whatever? Is is that really what the focus was, or is it kind of both? So go, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's seeing that the animal actually represents the person. Mm -hmm. The point is not primarily that the animal is killed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can be a sort of substitutionary element that is part of what's taking place. But there's also the offering of the whole person. And so the animal is identified with the person in some way. It's not just a sacrifice performing the expulsion of some other character from the society. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you notice is the sacrifice is often preceded by the person who's offering laying their hands upon the animal. Mm -hmm. And that's an act of identification. It's, it's saying that this animal represents me. And it's one of the reasons why it's important that certain animals are offered for particular persons. So if you're the high priest, it needs to be a bull because a bull represents your place within the community. And as you place your hand upon that bull, it stands in for you. And when it approaches God, as it, um, its blood is presented, as it is burnt up into God's presence, 
it is a representation of your movement into God's presence. And so it's supposed to be accompanied by prayer, with worship, things like that, because that's how you make your movement along with that sort of symbolic movement of the animal. And so the it's a sort of, maybe you could think of it as symbolic training wheels for the human approach to God. It shows you the form of approach to God. Mm-hmm. And as you follow that in your own, it's a sort of performed prayer. And so as you watch that being performed and you recognize that you are involved in this, this animal stands in for you, you can approach God with your heart along with that. And that's one of the reasons why the prophets emphasize so much the importance of the heart, the importance Mm -hmm. of obedience to correspond with sacrifice. The other thing that you mentioned, you talk about the way that we think about sacrifice as giving things up. That's a, a more modern meaning, which is related in part to the idea of a sacrifice. A sacrifice tends to be costly. It's something that takes something from you. Mm -hmm. But that's not the primary meaning of sacrifice. The sacrifice is an offering. It is something that you are giving as a gift to God that represents you and what you have, something about your person. Whereas in the case of when we talk about making a sacrifice, we're not thinking about making an offering We're thinking more about denying ourselves something for some other cause. So there's an overlap of meaning, but it's not quite the same thing. Okay. Halbertal gets into that very helpfully. So on that point then, I mean, so it was important that the animals were unblemished, right? The ones. Yeah. So I had always thought that was because like, oh, gee, if if the priest says I got to give a lamb, let's go get the one that isn't going to fetch a high price in the market anyway, so I can get off cheaply. And like, no, 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 you got to give, you know, grade A, the, the best type of lamb you have in your flock. That's the one. But are you, is that not the, the rationale for that? It's because... That's part of the rationale. Okay. But mm-hmm. we also see the rationale is that the unblemished character of the animal symbolizes something about the human being. So the human being has to be unblemished in, in their character. They have... I mean, you have that language used about Christ, Mm -hmm. but it's used in a moral sense. Mm -hmm. So Christ is a lamb without blemish. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have any sort of physical mark or deformity. The point is rather that he is spiritually pure, that he's sinless. And so in the same way, when we present ourselves as worshippers to God, we need to be cleansed of anything Mm -hmm. that's impure about us. And we need a sacrifice that is the only sacrifices that will be accepted by God are those things that are pure. Mm -hmm. And so the animal approaching God, the pure animal approaching God, approaches in some places as a representative of the worshipper, but also in other ways as a substitute of the worshipper, because the worshipper is not pure. Mm -hmm. The worshipper has all these sins and other things that need to be dealt with. And so having a pure animal, symbolically pure, being offered in their stead, enables them to approach God and have their sin dealt with symbolically. So, Alistair, can I ask you, so again, I'm, I'm a believer, <laughs> but on behalf of the people who are not, you know, like secular humanists who might be listening to this, I can imagine them saying at this point, guys, let's talk about the elephant in the room here. I mean, if someone com- goes and commits a crime and then the government grabs a person who didn't commit the crime and puts them in prison to satisfy, that's nutty, that's crazy, and your whole religion is built on that premise. The idea that, oh, we're going to find an unblemished animal to represent our sins, that's crazy. And then, you know, the edifice of your whole system is 
the son of God comes down and who himself is sinless and then gets killed. And that's somehow supposed to make everything good for all the sins you agree you committed. So do you want to go ahead and take a shot at, you know, someone who says, (laughs) (laughs) if you put it that way, yes, it doesn't make sense. And it, it is not something that does away with justice Mm -hmm. or with principles of retribution for crimes committed, things like that. One of the things that you do notice in scripture is that it deals with the forgiveness of sin and guilt without doing away with the need to deal with crimes. Mm -hmm. So if someone has committed a crime, they can be forgiven their guilt, but they still have to deal with the consequences of their crimes, whether that's imprisonment or some sort of recompense that they have to give, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Now, when we're talking about Christ, the point is that the worshiper has to be associated with the pure animal. It's not that the animal covers for you in a way that allows you to be impure and sinful and do whatever you want because you've got this animal covering for you. Rather, this animal is performing your approach to God's presence in a way that's supposed to conform you to it so that you're supposed to become pure Mm -hmm. and unblemished. And that occurs through the sacrifice of that representative that will change your character. And so the offering of Christ is presented in the terms of the sacrificial system, as something that transforms the worshipper. Christ gives us access into God's presence and also gives his Holy Spirit by which we are cleansed and made new so that we can have access to in him and in a way that is transforming our own characters to make us conform to the sort of persons that can come near to God's presence. So not it's not doing away with the connection between the person who has committed the crimes and the consequences, just cutting those loose and putting them onto some other party. That's not actually how it's working. Rather, it's the point of dealing with those things in a way that is real and true so that that person can have access to God's presence, restored relationship with God and other people. Mm. And one of the things that the sacrificial system does with all these different types of sacrifice is gives us a very subtle symbolic language and way of thinking about what's taking place in these situations. When we just think about sacrifice as such, it's very hard to think about the different subtleties of dealing with different aspects of what someone has done. The um, trespass offering is paying back something for something that you have taken, as it were, from God. The sin offering is dealing with impurity, those things that would keep you from God's holy presence. The whole burnt offering is the offering up of the whole person into God's presence so that the person can come near to God. And the communion offering or the peace offering is a shared meal with God. It's enjoying fellowship and communion. Mm -hmm. And so all of these are aspects that compose the broader reality of sacrifice. And it's not just substitutionary. That's part of it. But there's a lot more going on. And the purpose of it all is to lead to that point of the whole offering of the self and communion with God in this shared celebration. And for that to take place, there needs to be a moral transformation by the spirit that corresponds with the the movement of the animal towards God's presence through these different Mm -hmm. processes. Okay, so, you know, I'm sure we could talk for literally hours on this. There's plenty there, but I do want to switch and give you a chance. So you mentioned you're working on a Bible commentary. For one thing, just for the listeners who who are not, religious. Can you just explain what, is, what does that mean actually? And then how did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? Because that's a, that's a humongous project, obviously. Yeah. So the Bible is a book that 
can be a bit daunting at first read, particularly when you start to hit the later chapters of Exodus and again get into the book of Leviticus. Mm -hmm. Many people have started reading it and then stalled at those points. What I've been doing over the last year and will be doing for the next year and a half is a detailed discussion of each chapter of the Bible. So I'm going from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. I'm doing the New Testament and the Old Testament alongside each other. I've almost finished the New Testament now, and I've got up to mm. the end of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, and the cur I'm currently going through the Psalms. And what I'm hoping for people to get from it is a greater familiarity with the text, seeing how these patterns play out throughout the whole of the book, of books of the Bible, learning how to read different parts, being attentive to the Bible as literature as well. Mm -hmm. The Bible is a very literarily dense document. It has all these different connections. It plays with motifs and themes. It has characters that are what some have called types that represent other characters and that connect with them. And so I'm helping people, hopefully, to read their Bibles attentively, to notice the details. Why is it important, let's say, that Jesus has 12 disciples? Why do we see um, the timing of particular events? Why does the Spirit get given on the day of Pentecost as opposed to other days? Why do we have some of these similarities between, let's say, David and Jacob? And how can we understand both of those characters better as a result of those things? Mm -hmm. So this is a long project, but hopefully as people follow it through or just dip in at various points, the Bible will become less of a strange and forbidding document and will become a lot more challenging, encouraging, and transformative. It's certainly been that way for me. So I'm trying to share something of how I have benefited from the text with other mm. people. Right. So the, the commentaries I've read, I mean, it's, it's like a study guide. Is that a, is that a fair yeah. place for people to understand? Like I've written study guides for economics books. And like you say, that they're real dense. And sometimes I'll need to say, oh, the reason this author is spending so much time attacking this doctrine is because when he wrote the book, this was a prevalent thing that people thought, even though nowadays we don't, no one talks like this anymore. And so, did it, so likewise, like I love the commentary, like, you know, Jesus and some of his parables, even to this day, we can read it and know what he's getting at. But then the commentary will say, oh, the, the listeners of the day, you know, since they were all you know, shepherds or farmers, whatever, they yep. would have understood what he was referring to here was blah, blah, blah. And you're saying, oh, I didn't know that was the custom. Okay. So now the story is even more intriguing that he told. I think that's one of the things that you find throughout the biblical text. Mm -hmm. there, there are just layers to the text that don't do away with what people have already seen, mm -hmm. but they fill it out in ways. It's as if listening to just a melody line and then suddenly you have harmony and mm -hmm. everything springs out in a new way. And so... I believe the whole of the Bible is God's word and it rewards careful reading. And the more carefully you read it, I think the more you have a confirmation, this isn't just a human text. There's something remarkable about the depths and the intricacies of this. Mm -hmm. Do you have any glib response? Like, I, I know, and I, I'm ashamed to say, I used to think this too when I was younger. It seems like, oh, in the Old Testament, God's real mean. And then all of a sudden he's real nice when Jesus comes along. <laughs> do you... Do you I guess is one of the, the things, because you're saying you're how you're doing them sort of simultaneously. Is that yep. something you're stressing, like to show there's the continuity between the two yes, Testaments? I, I think you see so much continuity. And mm -hmm. 
One of the places to look, first of all, you have God judging very much in the New Testament and places like Revelation mm-hmm. particularly. But then in the Old Testament, there are just these themes of grace running throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If you read the Psalms and read the descriptions of God there, or if you read many of the prophets, mm-hmm. the sense of God's heart for his people, how God cares and wants them to know peace, but they bring all these things upon themselves. It's a text that, as you read it more closely, I think it just undermines itself, the um the myth that there is this one God in the Old Testament and this mm-hmm. very different sort of portrayal of God in the New. It's not actually that opposed at all. And I think in the teaching of Christ, he's constantly referring to the Old Testament, as mm-hmm. with the apostles. Mm-hmm. This is a text in which they find the God that they're proclaiming in the gospel message, the apostles do. And so we should too. We're told also that Christ is present throughout the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Many of the early church fathers, and I think correctly, see Christ as the figure, for instance, of the angel of the Lord, this mysterious character who's following Israel throughout all their journeys. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, as, as it were, we have the mask removed and we see who it was all the time. And so Christ has been active throughout the whole story. And in the New Testament, we see he's not changed. He's still gracious. He's still one who judges. He's still one who is concerned for the holiness of his people. Mm -hmm. But that is seen in a way that God takes concern for his people in a way that he'll take the burden upon himself. And in Christ, I think we see the zenith of that representation of God as the one who delivers his people in person. He's the one who will stand for his people when their sins would bring them down to the depths. He's the one who will go down to those depths for them. Yeah, I mean, just among other things, like Jesus says, you know, when they say like, what are the greatest commandments? You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I used to think that he was there summing up what the Old Testament contained, like, and that was his novel thing. And then I read later, like, I'm I'm more careful. No, that's actually from the old, he's quoting. In other words, it's not that Jesus distilled that out of it because that was his formulation. I mean- Jesus was back then too, but you get what I'm saying. That it, it's not as if he looked at the the barbarism and wow, God's really angry and fiery guy on the mountaintop blowing people up. And then Jesus is the nice guy who comes along and he's all hearts. Like that that dichotomy really is not like you say that he's he's literally quoting from you know the law and the prophets when he says things like that. Yes, the the statement about loving God is from Deuteronomy chapter six Mm -hmm. and the statement about loving neighbor from Leviticus chapter 19. Mm -hmm. And as you look through these texts, I think what you'll find is that they're working on one level as straightforward commandment and saying, if you disobey this, these are the consequences, these are the blessings, but they also invite meditation and reflection. And so if you read the law and look more closely it's inviting you to think about the deeper principles. And if you go through the book of Deuteronomy, this is the greatest example of it. It starts off with an introductory section followed by a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And then in chapters 6 to 26, each one of those commandments in succession is unpacked in various ways. Mm -hmm. And it helps you to understand, as it were, the bright light of the law refracted into all these different situations so you can see it more clearly. And then when you get to the end, For instance, you have the commandment not to covet. How do we understand that commandment? Well, in chapter 26, it's fulfilled with a celebration in which you invite your friends and other people to celebrate God's goodness, to be 
thankful for what he has done. And in that way, how do you deal with covetousness? Not just by not coveting, but with the positive practices of thanksgiving, gratitude, contentment, and generosity. And so within the text itself, it's always pushing towards this deeper understanding, but it's dealing with people at a far more basic level of appreciation. Mm. These are people from a pagan culture. They've lived in Egypt for a long time. They're struggling to understand this stuff. So they're taught very much as you might teach children. Don't touch the stove or you'll be punished. You're trying to protect them. But over time, they begin to internalize these principles Mm. to understand what is good and what is bad. And at that stage, they realize that all of this is driven by love and concern Mm. for their growth and well-being. It may seem forbidding and opposing to them at first that their parent is just being mean, but over time they realize Mm. that the heart of it all was love. And I think that's Mm. what we find as we go through the scripture. The reason I'm smiling like this, Alistair, is because I promised you I was going to use the exact same analogy, but then I thought, no, this guy's writing a Bible commentary. That's too simplistic. He's going to think that that's goofy. I'm not even going to say that. But yeah, that's the way I used to, because also when you read the behavior of the humans in those old stories, they're so uncivilized and barbaric and merciless that like you realize, look at what God had to work with. Like he kind of had to gradually bring them around into, you know, so it's anyway. And I think that's something people overlook when they say, oh, gee, why is God such a hard guy back in the Old Testament and whatever? And it's like, well, look what, you know, it would be like if the if the, the the kindergarten teacher stepped out for a minute and then comes back and the kids are literally killing each other. You know, like she would probably yep. like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, that's wrong. Stop that right now. You know, as opposed to a, now let's calmly reflect upon the principles of just behavior for kids. And, you know, so, <laughs> well, so I guess, is there any, and I realize we're right winding down here of the, the time that uh, I asked you for, so are there any particular commentaries that like when you read, you, you thought, yes, I love the way this person's doing that and that you're trying to emulate that in, in your version? Yes. Um, well, one of the people who's really influenced the way that I read the Bible is James Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, he has done most of his work with the as Biblical Horizons and then more recently with the group that I now work with, the Theopolis Institute. And he is just a very... In- attentive reader of the biblical text. He's very good at dealing with things like sacrifice, the symbolic aspects of scripture. He's very attentive to the literary structures of the text. And as a result, I think he sees things that most commentators don't. And Peter Lightheart is another. For people who want to read the New Testament and see some of the ways the New Testament uses the old in very subtle and brilliant ways, I'd recommend someone like Richard Hayes. Richard Hayes is very good at those sorts of as those sorts of things. And on various books, there are different people I've found helpful from Jew, a number of Jewish commentators I would recommend. Someone like Rabbi David Foreman is superb on the Pentateuch. And then I've enjoyed on the Pentateuch as well, the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who recently died. And mm-hmm. um, I'd very highly recommend his Covenant and Conversation series. Jewish writers, writers have been paying attention to the text in ways that many Christians haven't for a long period of time. Mm. So they, I think they have s- some things to teach us, particularly on subjects like sacrifice. Right, because there's a lot, what I've noticed too in, in the commentaries that I use when I'm studying, and they'll bring in quotes from Jewish you know, scholars, 
and yeah, especially because a lot of the stuff when you read about the descriptions of what was supposed to happen in the different holidays or, or what you want to call them from the old time, it's pretty scant there. And so it's more like the tradition fills that in to ask, like, what did that mean in practice? Yeah. And so it's good to read commentaries to say, okay, so what they would actually do is, the, you know, this would happen, then this would happen, and it's not. It's implicit in the text, or it's consistent with the actual biblical text, but there's a lot of details that if someone just gave you Leviticus and said, okay, go do it, I, I gee, I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to do. So, so that it is The other helpful. thing you find is that they're very attentive to structures within the text, believing that the text, many of the classic Jewish commentators, Rashi and others like that, they believe that all the details really matter. Right. And so they're paying attention to the slightest structures, the repeated phrases, just the numbers of times a certain word is used in a given passage, things like that. And there I found it very helpful to think of the Bible as, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle mm -hmm. often to interpret a passage. You're thinking about the structure and then also the image. So you when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you start by turning over all the pieces. Then you start to gather all the edge pieces, right. particularly the corner pieces, get a sense of the shape of the thing. And then gather clusters of pieces together according to their colors and then start to sort things out according to the shape of the pieces. And as you do that, it starts to become easier to put things together. You have a sense of, okay, I don't know exactly where this piece goes, but I know more or less the region in which it belongs. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is often how reading the Bible is like. You're paying attention to the literary structure, you're paying attention to the content of the text, and then using all of those things, building mm -hmm. the bigger picture. One example of that, I'm, I'm sure this is something that everyone's noted, but when Jesus comes back and he's talking with Peter and he says, do you love me? And he makes him say it three times. Yeah. And you're, you know, just reading that in isolation, you're just like, didn't Jesus hear him the first time? And what? And he, Peter even says, you know I do. Like, why are you asking me? You already know the answer. But of course, because Peter had earlier denied him three times. And so they're like, just things like that, that it's really... And then you notice, for instance, where is he doing that? Next to a charcoal fire. Where did he do it the last time? Um, next to a fire. I didn't even notice so that. So there you it's go. It's all those yeah. sorts of details mm -hmm. that start to emerge when you pay attention. And so what I'm trying to encourage people to do, mm -hmm. and particularly the organization, Theopolis Institute that I've been involved with, they're trying to do is teach people to read the Bible that way. Mm -hmm. So... You don't need someone to tell you necessarily, but you'll be able to do it yourself and give you some of the skills. Right, and so in contrast to like, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter, but when Voldemort comes back and then finds his alleged servants who kind of sold him out when the tide turned and it was uncomfortable, yep. or, <laughs> he didn't give them a chance to like bring him back and be like, he punished them, <laughs> like you, you betrayed me. Whereas Jesus is like, no, you're going to be the rock. I need you to forgive yourself. I forgive you, but I need you to, you know what I mean? So it's just, you're like, wow, what a nice guy, what a brilliant leader. Like he really knows how to start a movement and build a church, this, this yep. guy, Jesus. What a, wow, what an amazing guy. So, okay, well, that's, I, I think that's the time that I had asked you for. Um, this has been a great conversation, folks. So this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 173. I'll give links to everything we've been talking about. My guest has been Alistair Roberts. Alistair, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.